And it goes very well with what we're looking at this evening in our message entitled, Know Your Enemy. Now last night, as the quiz reminded you, we talked about the entire purpose of the Word of God to convict the mind, to convince the mind, I'm sorry, convince the mind of truth, then to see the application of that truth in the life, it will convict the heart, and if yielded to, will convert the soul. And what we want to do these two weeks is study the Word of God to see what the truth is so our minds can understand it. We want to have sharp minds and then soften our hearts to receive it so it will be converted people fit for the kingdom of God that I believe we're going to see soon and very soon. I am absolutely convinced that we're going to see Jesus in my lifetime and I want to be ready for that day and my job for the rest of my life is to prepare others to be ready for that day as well. So what we want to do is study the Word of God and allow it to do its cutting work in our lives as we come to understand and appreciate the truths therein. And perhaps no greater truth in Scripture is found than the great story behind Scripture. And for the next several evenings, we're going to be, except for tomorrow, tomorrow at noon, we'll continue this, but as we continue through our series, regardless of location and time, each message will be building on the other so that we're laying out a nice, broad foundation for our study. But we're going to be looking at the great controversy theme, the whole battle between good and evil that underlies all of Scripture, and we're going to look at it from Scripture's evidence itself. And my guess is that many of us will see things in the Word of God we had no idea were sitting right there, and it will broaden and deepen our understanding and appreciation of the great controversy and Christ's role in it, and find for ourselves what we are to do and what role we are to play in ending sin and hastening Jesus' soon coming. So it's a big task. I believe the Bible is up to it, but we need to prepare ourselves for that. So before we begin our study tonight, let's dedicate ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Please bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, what a beautiful day you've given us. And now, Lord, we come into this place, this quiet place, to see your word, to understand its principles, and by the power of your Holy Spirit to make application in our lives. So Lord, I would ask that the same Holy Spirit that wrote those words through men of old would tonight write them on our hearts. Sharpen our minds to understand and soften the soil of the heart to receive that we may become what you want us to be restored into the very image of Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin tonight in Matthew chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, I should say since you have your Bibles, I want to assume the best of you, right? Matthew chapter 13, to give you a little context for our message tonight, Know Your Enemy, Jesus is there in the midst of his earthly ministry, only three and a half years long, of course, and he had to pack a lot into each day, I would assume, and here in Matthew chapter 13 seems to be a day full of parables. Parable after parable, story after story. He goes and he talks about parables and why he tells parables and he tells parable after parable and one in the middle of this day full of parables is the one called the parable of the wheat and the tares. And you'll find it in Matthew chapter 13 we're beginning with verse 24. And again, in case you did not bring your Bibles, the text will be on the screen. But for in safety's sake, and you always want to get the context, please know that these are in your Bibles, okay? The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, 
is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now, I don't have to break the parable down to you so much. It's so very, very elementary in its telling. Basically, there's a man who owns a field and he sows what kind of seed in that field? Good seed. So notice the man sows his own seed in his own field and he knows that it was good. He's the one who did it. But while other men, while men slept, so you're completely unawares, an enemy came in and planted tares or weeds, bad seed among all the good seed. And he went away. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever tried to garden before. I don't, do we have gardeners in the room? Okay. I am a failed gardener. I have tried and I've been shown that I don't have the gift of whatever it takes to grow things. Okay. But I remember when I was young, you try to put like a seed in a cup or a little plot, potter, a pot thing or something, a little planter, and you water it, you put your little fertilizer, you put, and you just watch. And the first day, nothing happens. And then the second day you come back and nothing has happened. And the third day you come back and nothing has happened. And by the fourth day, you just throw the whole stupid thing away because all you see is dirt, right? It takes a while. In this parable, notice what happened. The seed was sown at night. The bad seed, the tares, were sown at night. But immediately it doesn't show up. It only shows up later, but when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So over time, as things start to grow up, you would expect to see nice rows of plants, exactly the good seed with the good crop and all the things he said it was, but what appeared was tares mixed in. And this is very critical. So the servants of the owner, so apparently this is a large field. The owner does the sowing of the seed, but he expects other people to tend and cultivate and harvest his crop. They work in his field, and they notice that there are tares among the wheat. Now, this is an important task. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? A couple of things we want to point out here before we even dive into the interpretation. These servants of the owner ask questions to whom? To the owner. Why don't they just go talk to the enemy? They don't know anything about enemy. What were they doing when the enemy was doing his work? They were sleeping. So as far as they know, there is the owner and the crop. That's it. And there's a discrepancy between what they've heard the owner say and what they themselves have seen. Do you see that? There's a discrepancy. There's a disparity. There's a dissonance between the saying of the owner and the seeing of the servants. Does that make sense? Okay. So they ask him about it. Did you not sow good seed in your field? The implication is, did you make a mistake? Or did you just say it was good? In reality, it had some bad in it. Did you lie? Because their question is very basic. 
How then does it have tares? If you did what you say you did, how do we see what we absolutely see? Answer is fantastic. He said to them, an enemy has done this. How much responsibility does the owner of the field take for the presence of the tares? None. None at all. He doesn't say, ah, you got me. I said it was good, but I really didn't check it out. It could have, who knows what was in that seed? I don't know what I'm doing. He didn't do that. He said, look, I didn't do it. What you see is correct and what I say is correct. There's a third party you're unaware of called an enemy. And he did this. An enemy has done this. Okay. So he continues the parable. The servant said to them, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Now that's a logical question. For after all, what is their occupation? They're the servants of the owner. They work the field. They're the harvesters, right? So they, you want us to go in early and start plucking up the tares? And here's the answer. He said, no. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Can you imagine what would happen if he says, you know, things have just sprouted and it looks like there's some bad seed in there. Do you want us to just go through the whole field and dig them up? He said, no, what's going to happen? The good crop is going to get uprooted too. You're going to make a disaster of the whole thing. He says, here's what we do. Let both grow together until when? The harvest. So clearly there's a day coming where there's going to be a differentiation between the two. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So apparently at the time of the harvest, he will say to the reapers, now you can go bind the one for the burn and take the other one into my barn. But until then, you're going to do damage to the wheat. So now that it started, we have to let it grow until the harvest. It's a very simple principle. Now, what's interesting is that of all the different things that Jesus talked about that day, of all the different parables, if you look down at chapter 13 still, in verse 36, the disciples had a, something pick their curiosity here. Because it says in verse 36, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us, and it doesn't say all the parables you said today. They had one stuck in their mind. Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. They realized Jesus was saying something very big here and they didn't quite get it. They said, could you break that one down and explain it point by point for us? And this is what Jesus did. By the way, I'm so glad we serve a God who, if we want to know stuff, he'll tell us. It's a very simple premise. Many of us lack knowledge when God says, well, why don't you come and ask me? So he just leaves that hanging and they come back and ask for information. He said, no problem. Let's break it down. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. And throughout Jesus' ministry on earth, the son of man was a moniker that he gave for himself the son of man. He said, that owner, that planter, that sower is me. Okay. 
The field is the whole world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked ones. So there's the righteous and the wicked in this world that is the field. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reaper's friends are whom? The angels. Now that's going to be a critical point in just a moment. The reapers are the angels. So again, Jesus laid it out like this. Oh, he's not done. He says, therefore, so now we have the symbols broken down. Here's the action. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So apparently at the end of the age, there's going to be a separation between the wheat and the tares. Some are bound for the fire and others are bound for the kingdom. That's what the parable means. Now, lining it out now, we can see the sower is Jesus Christ. The field is the world. The good seeds are the righteous, the sons of the kingdom, right? The tares are the wicked. The enemy is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. The reapers are the angels. Now, what's interesting to me about that We're going to have to come back to that, but I want you to put a pin in that idea. The reapers are the angels. But tonight's message is entitled, Know Your Enemy. We're going to look at the biblical evidence for who this enemy is. Jesus says an enemy has done this. And the Bible, on several different occasions, pulls back the veil, lets us see behind the scenes as to who the enemy of God and his people really is. Now, many people will get hung up on this question. The same thing that the servants of the owner in the parable were saying, many people still say today. Well, wait a minute. If there claims to be a God, a Jesus, who formed, fashioned, and filled this world in the beginning, and according to the Genesis narrative, every day it was good, 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 and by the time he made, say, six with mankind, he said it was very good. If there's such a good God, who's such a loving God, who's such a powerful God, who planted nothing but good in this world, how come we see wickedness abound? Many skeptics, agnostics, atheists, avowed disbelievers will use that line of reasoning to discredit all religion, particularly Christianity. They'll say, yeah, but you've got this big, good, powerful God and this horrible, terrible world. He's like, very, they'll say very simply, your God, cancer. Answer, please. Your God, genocide. Go. Now, if you turn that question around, the atheist has no problem with that conundrum. You know why there's cancer? Because everything stinks. The world is formed from chaos. We're only here for a fleeting moment. And who knows what's coming next? 
Wars and rumors of war, yeah, we're evolving and we're not good at it. <laughs> it's a disaster. It's chaos. But you Christians, you think that God built this place and He superintends this place, that He personally cares for the people in this place. And He's big and He's strong and He is love. And yet He seems to be doing nothing about the stuff that's hurting us. These are tough questions. And I'm so glad that the Bible gives us good answers. Jesus comes along and says, an enemy has done this. Now let's look at the origin of this enemy. Did God, by the way, make the devil? Therefore making God the devil maker? Let's find out what scripture tells us. Isaiah chapter 14 is one of those passages in scripture that pulls back the veil and lets us see behind the scenes. And we read here, the lamentation, how you are fallen from where? Heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Lucifer, you know, not, hopefully not a lot of people name their, I don't hear a lot of people naming their children Lucifer. It's kind of gotten a bad rap. Justifiably so. But Lucifer in itself isn't a bad name. It means the light bearer, lucis, illumination, right? Light, son of the morning. He was in heaven, but apparently fell from heaven. How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you were cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. And now notice this. For you have said, and this is key, in your what? Heart. Now I'm going to just stop right there. Whatever we're got to read in his heart, I have two questions for you. Number one, is it possible to think something inside of you that you don't express on the outside of you? Absolutely. Most all of us have thoughts, feelings, motives that are churning on the inside but don't take expression through our mouth or through our eyes. Now I know that they, every one of us probably knows someone who doesn't have that filter. <laughs> Whatever's coming up on the inside comes out on the outside. But most of us have developed a way to kind of control the internal monologue and let it just be our own thoughts and right here. Now notice in scripture here, for you have said in your heart. It's not like he was walking around heaven saying this stuff out loud. So that's number one. Number two, how on earth would anybody know what was going on in someone's heart? Who's the only one who can see through people? God. Now, we can see two people, and I can inspect the fruit of your life and character and the results of your behavior, and I can look at your expression and try to infer what's going on on the inside, but God knows definitively what's going on in your heart and mind. And according to Scripture, all the things we're about to read were going on inside the heart of Lucifer, the son of the morning, in heaven. Okay? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend above the, into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the heights, the stars of the God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like whom? The Most High. It's been rightly said that Lucifer had an eye problem. Everything was about him, him, me, me. He was a millennial. <laughs> Far worse than that, of course. Now notice, he was Lucifer though, the light bearer. He was in heaven already. He was the son of the morning. 
We're going to see from the book of Ezekiel had a highly exalted position. In fact, there's good evidence to say he was the highest created being God had ever made. He was occupying the highest position of great honor, yet from that vantage point, he wanted more. And inside of his heart, a jealousy, a self-aggrandizement, an arrogance began to boil up. But I'm going to take a wild guess that not everybody saw it on the outside. I'm guessing while it was going on on the inside, on the outside he was all. And I don't want to ask for volunteers, and this certainly isn't a testimony time, but I'm guessing all of us have seen come and coming down the hall. And what we express on the outside is not exactly what we're feeling on the inside. And I'm guessing Satan was a master of that. Let's go to Ezekiel 28. Looking at the same experience, the fall of this light bearer from his exalted position, we read in Ezekiel chapter 28, starting with verse 12, you were the seal of, what's that word? Perfection. He's like, you summarized what perfect is. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Pause right there. The anointed cherub who covers. A cherub is an order of what? Angel, right? And if you're aware at all of the Old Testament typology and, and symbolism, you remember in the sanctuary in the wilderness, there was the courtyard with its furniture, the holy place with its furniture, and then the most holy place of God's dwelling that had one piece of furniture. What was it? The Ark of the Covenant. And on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that was called, by the way, that lid was called the mercy. Anybody just stop to think of what a wonderful thing that is? That God's throne room is called the mercy seat instead of the seat of damnation. It rightfully could be, but he calls it the mercy seat. Anyway, I digress. The mercy seat, and there were those two angels figured there with their wings outstretched, covering. What was represented in that typology, in that symbolism in the Old Testament, is a reflection of the heaven rea reality. Lucifer was one of those angels for real. In fact, it says here, I established you. Some versions say, for so I ordained you. God chose Lucifer and put him in that exalted position. He ordained him to the work. Do you ever think about Lucifer was an ordained minister in the church of God in heaven? He was Pastor Lucifer. Elder Lightbearer. Universally respected, trusted, honored. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways. Did God create Lucifer with some sort of design flaw? And a little drop of evil that got out of the vial? No. Perfection. Blameless. From the day you were created till iniquity was found. And notice where it was found again. In you. Both Isaiah and Ezekiel make the point that the sin, the transgression, the iniquity that was formed 
was formed inside of this individual. In his heart, in you. He goes on to explain, by the abundance of your trading, by the way, we're going to come back to that tomorrow night, what on earth was he peddling around heaven? Have you ever asked, what did, he, what did Satan do to actually get kicked out? Who did he kill? Did he steal some stuff? We'll come back to that tomorrow night. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with what? Violence. Where was the violence? Within. So it went from jealousy to outright violence, but it was still all inside. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Notice he doesn't get blotted out of existence. He just gets cast out of heaven. He doesn't get destroyed. He simply gets removed. And we want to think about that a little bit tonight. If God could see in his heart, why didn't he just kill him before the experiment got out of the lab? Just, you know, the not-so-great controversy. <laughs> That's it. Think about that. We're going to come back and answer that in a moment. But it's a very valid question. But first of all, let's note this. Lucifer was a perfect being who chose to rebel. Now, I can't sit and explain why, in any logical way, someone in a perfect environment with the highest position, with everything very, in the very presence of God, would choose to rebel. As my favorite author likes to say, to explain it would be to excuse it. It just doesn't make sense. He chose to rebel, period. But that's what happened. He wasn't made a little fault and he didn't have just a little drop of wickedness and God didn't slip a little evil in the mix. And he certainly didn't create a devil for the devil's sake. He created a perfect being who chose to disobey and rebel. Thus, when we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, a description of the war in heaven, now it makes a bit more sense. Notice this. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Notice this is the third time now that we've seen the Bible talk about the fall of Lucifer from heaven, and each time it's a casting out of heaven instead of a blotting out of existence. Why? By the way, when we talk about the war in heaven, please don't think of a war in the terms of like we have war and bloodshed and violence now. There were not angelic bodies strewn across the streets of gold. It wasn't bombs, and it wasn't guns, it wasn't hand-to-hand -hand combat, and it wasn't drones, or whatever we have now. The word there for war, that used in Revelation 12, verse 7, is polemos, the Greek word, the root word of our English word, polemic. Now, I don't know if there are any English majors in the room, but if somebody would like to venture a guess as to what a polemic is, okay, words, that's an important part of it, okay, 
Basically, it's an argument. Webster defines it this way. An aggressive attack on or refutation of the opinions or principles of another. You see, friends, the war in heaven was not a war of weapons, but it was a war of words. It was a conflict of ideas. It was a battle for loyalty. And there were two opposing positions. There was God and his way and his law and his kingdom. And then there was Lucifer saying, I want to be like the Most High and I can offer you more than he can. We'll get into this again tomorrow night a little bit, but I just want to dip my toe into the next presentation. But I think it would have been a pretty pretty interesting sell to hear Lucifer say, you know, have you ever noticed that all the songs are about him? It's all like every week, let's go sing to him. Now remember, he doesn't come out on the outside. I want to be in the place of God. He just drops subtleties. We'll come back to it tomorrow night. But the war in heaven was not a war of weapons. It was a war of words. Which brings us to the question again. Why did God merely cast Lucifer out of heaven instead of completely blotting Lucifer out of existence? He could have ended it right then, right? I like to explain it this way. This is how my mind works, and maybe you can follow along. Let's say that there were a wonderful day of worship when all of God's creatures, sentient beings from all over the created universe, come before their creator to sing praises to his name. Let's call it a great Sabbath day, a big jubilee, a wonderful festival that the Lord has put together and people are flocking to the throne of God and there's hundreds of thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 of angels and seraphim and cherubim and they have the, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, everything that the book of Revelation describes is on display that day. And God, of course, is sitting on the throne and he's receiving the praise. And I'm telling you, these people could sing. There's no timidity. There's no, uh, there's no off note. Everything is harmony and beautiful, thick, deep, rich, echoing, monstrous voices. It had to be fantastic, phenomenal. And you imagine they're singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And when they hit that note, just harmonies. Had to be a good Sabbath in heaven. Right? And the eye of God sweeps across his created universe. And of course, he sees people differently than we see people. He doesn't just see the expression. He sees the motive underneath. He doesn't just see the face. He sees the heart. He reads the mind. He knows the character. And his eye sweeps across, and every individual that his eye rests upon is harmonious inside and out. Their insides match their outside. The purity of the expression is reflected by the purity of the character. It's like translucent glass. It's beautiful. Until he gets to his right-hand man, the one leading the chorus that day. And of course, on the outside, what everybody else can see is, but on the inside, her. And imagine in the middle of the, praise God from, and then God himself says, wait. Everybody, keep it down for just a second. 
man, I hate to do this. Lucifer, could you step forward, please? And Lucifer, of course, still playing along. Oh, yes, what, what can I do for you? Do you want another song? Do you want a different chord? Should we take it up an octave? Let's do it. God says, stop. Just stop. Lucifer, iniquity has been found in you. And the wages of sin is death. The Bible says how man comes into living, to be a living being, God breathes into his nostrils. And when he dies, he takes that breath back. Imagine if God did that discreative process right then and there. And the lifeless body of the covering cherub falls to the ground at Jesus' feet. And then imagine if God stepped forward and said, all right, where were we? Let's sing it again. Praise God from whom all bless. Huh? What? Hmm. Quick question. Are all the other angels still loyal to God at this point? Yes. Yes. Do they have questions for God at this point? Yes. Absolutely. Friends, let me tell you right now, you can be a loyalist to God and still have questions for God. Pause, by the way. Let's go back in our minds to the parable of the wheat and the tares. Who were the ones asking about the presence of the tares? the servants of the owner. And Jesus said, the reapers are the angels. I'm absolutely convinced that there are questions that even angels ask about the existence and continuance of evil in this world. And they do it from a position of loyalty but they need to understand more. Now, in that scenario, where the Lord blotted him out of existence right then and there, as soon as iniquity was found in him, what if God's only response to his action was to say, oh, that? Don't worry. Trust me. Now let's sing. Praise God from Yes, mm. mm. here's what have happened. Sure, he would have killed the rebel. But it wouldn't have done a thing to the rebellion. In fact, it would have unleashed the rebellion. Remember the parable. Once 
the seed has been sown, it needs to mature until the harvest. By the way, the Bible says exactly the same thing. Ezekiel and Isaiah give the exact answer as to why God merely cast Satan out instead of blotting him out of existence the minute iniquity was found. Notice this from Ezekiel 28. He said, I cast you to the ground, I laid you before kings that they might, what's that word? Gaze at you. Somebody give me a synonym for gaze. Stare, look. They're going to look at you. I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. So the people who had seen you before would have a chance to see what's happened. All who knew you, your former associates, your, your, your peers from eons past, all who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. So notice there's several steps here. There were people who knew him a long time ago before iniquity was in his heart. Then there were the people who witnessed the fall. And then they needed to see what happened after that so that when it's all over, they can have their questions answered too. And only then can he no more be forever. That was Ezekiel 28. Now watch Isaiah chapter 14. Notice the identical language. You shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you. What's a synonym for consider? Contemplate. Meditate. Cogitate. To ruminate. To mull over. To think. God wanted to give the people who had known Lucifer before the opportunity to see for themselves, what he had seen in his heart all along. And they're going to say, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms? He used to be there, and now he's... we got to think about that for a minute. Lucifer was cast out of heaven so others could gaze at him and consider him. We're going to see over the next course of the next several meetings that this is a most crucial theme. God needs his creatures to see that he's right. God needs his creatures to see that he's right. Let me illustrate it this way. There was a man who had a, uh, a very busy schedule, a hectic life, and he knew that he was having a nice evening at home coming up. He was really looking forward to it. The, his wife was going to be away. The kids were out of town. It was just, he's going to get a nice night just to sit with a book and a hot cup of tea or something. He was really looking forward to it. He comes home, puts the car in the garage, goes in, and he's got his little chair in the back with the one little lamp on, and he's got his little book there, and he's got his little drink. He's going to have a nice night. Of course, on the outside of the house, it looks like nobody's home. And there's a burglar thinking he's going to have a nice night, too. And he says, oh, this was easy. There's no car in the driveway. There's no lights on at the house. This is nothing. This is fine. I'm not even going to wear a mask or gloves. I'm just going in, taking what I want, and going home. So while the man is in the back of the house with a one little lamp, and he's got this little book there reading his nice evening away, the other man is coming to the door, but not in the kind of 
kind of way, but that other kind of way. And the man in the chair hears what's going on on the other end of the house. And he, oh! he quickly turns off the light. And he grabs his phone and he dials 911. Psst, help. There's someone in my house. By the way, have you ever, you ever know your, your home well enough that you could walk through it in the dark? Right? And then somebody moves the furniture and it's the worst experience in the world. Right? <laughs> But you know the layout of your house, you know how many steps, you know which floorboard is going to creak, you know the house. And when you hear someone, you know where they are in the house based on the blueprint in your mind, right? And this guy knows his house and he can tell that the man, the footsteps are getting closer and closer and closer to where he is. And he's like, hurry, he's getting closer. <laughs> Until he knows that he's in the same room as he is. He has no weapon. He has no recourse. What's the only thing he can do? He flips on the light really quick, floods the room with illuminance, and then he, he yells on the phone, he's here in the room, come get him! Scaring the mess out of the burglar, by the way. The light comes on, his eyes, <gasps> and for like a brief moment that seems to last for 30 or 40 years, you know, their eyes are both bugged out, and face to face, they stare each other down, and in the back you can hear, the sirens are coming. And the burglar doesn't know what to do, so he takes off and runs out of the house just as the squad car is pulling up. They open up the back seat, whoop, come on in. <laughs> he closes the door behind him. By the way, the man in the house feels like the man of the house that night. <laughs> just defended my territory and whatnot. I'm gonna go get some sleep. Good night. <clears throat> The other man had a much different night. He gets taken down to the county jail and he goes to the booking for processing. He finally gets to sleep like at three in the morning on a nice metal cot, chained to some other ne'er-do-wells. <laughs> and the next morning he gets up and has to face the music. He has to go before the judge and he has the whole processing to go and whatnot. The other man at the other house had a great night's sleep, slept like a baby. But he had to wake up and go to work the next day, showers, takes, takes his drive to work, he's ready to go, gets dressed, goes into work. Now, for the poor burglar, he's sitting there, and of course there's the prosecutor and there's the defense attorney and there's a panel of, you know, witnesses as they do at these things. And he's going to have to face the judge. And he looks at the clock, time is there, and then he hears the bailiff, all rise. He gets up all chained and stuff. And in walks the judge, who just happens to be the guy whose house he broke into last night. <laughs> and for the second time in so many days, they're face to face in a well-lit room, and their eyes both bug out. <gasps> and the burglar's thinking, I am the worst crook ever. <laughs> And the judge is like, this is the best day of my life. <laughs> and he kind of strides to the, to the chair. He's like, morning, everybody. How you doing, sir? Good night. I slept great. <laughs> and then he turns around. He's like, defense attorney, don't even try. <laughs> You're going to lose this one. Prosecutor, good job, brother. 
Haven't heard a word you've said, but I already buy your case. In fact, I'm ready to render a verdict right now. He takes the gavel, bangs it down, and says, Guilty! Let me ask you a question. Is the judge wrong in his verdict? No. He nailed it. But is he right in rendering a verdict without due process? No. Is it possible to be right the wrong way? Yes. Now, what difference does it make if this guy gets a fair trial or not, if the judge already knows the verdict? Because here's the key. It's important not just to be right, but you need to be seen as right as well. If God were to execute Lucifer the day that sin was found, he would be right, but he wouldn't be seen as right, and it wouldn't have ended the rebellion. It would have simply have killed the rebel. Do we all understand that? Praise God. Now, of course, we live here on this earth, and at some point we know that heaven's rebel became earth's ruler. This is what happened, by the way, just very briefly. You're very probably familiar with this, but... When God created the heavens and the earth, he took six days to form and fill this earth. And at the end of day six, he created man in his own image for the purpose of being the curator of all that he had created. Of course, only God is the creator, but man was supposed to be the curator of his work. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have, what's the word? dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. He built man with a purpose, not only to reflect his image, but also to rule in his place on this earth he had created. Very simple. Now, only two chapters later, we don't know exactly how much time transpired between Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, but the Bible, it only takes three pages. And then it says, then the serpent. Now, we've seen the word serpent tonight already. Do you remember where it was? Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Calls the great dragon, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And apparently, he was not given free reign over the whole planet. He had one locality from which he could spew his nonsense. And it was the forbidden tree. But when the opportune moment came up and the woman wandered close to that forbidden tree, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, what had God said? You will surely die. And notice what his line of reasoning is. For God knows. Pause right there. The implication is God knows and you don't. Right? God knows that in the day you even it, your eyes will be what? What does that imply about the state of her eyes right now? They're closed. You can't see. You don't know. God knows and he sees and he doesn't want you to have access to that wisdom. You're not going to die. You're going to live more than you've ever lived before. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
You don't need a God to tell you what's right or wrong. Were you not created perfect in all of your ways? Can you not choose the simplest things? Notice the thinking. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now, I want you to notice very carefully here. God had said, do not eat. And she should obey that command for the simple reason that God had said so. Period. But now she's evaluating according to her own criteria whether or not to obey God. Friends, this is a very dangerous place for you to be. To say, I know God says, but I see. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes. And a tree desirable to make one wise. She took some of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. God said, don't do it. Satan said, do it. And they stood at the crossroads and chose. Not based on what God had said, but what they wanted to see. Now, the Apostle Paul, a couple thousand years later, would send out this very simple principle. In fact, it was so simple, he says, do you not know? This is common sense. This is Christianity 101. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? He says, you can call yourself a follower of God all you want, but if you obey me, you're my slave. It's very simple. You are the slave of the one you obey. Now, they were built in God's image to represent him in this world and to be obedient to his law. But Satan said, no, 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 no. Obey me. And they did. A point, by the way, the devil actually, believe it or not, concedes. I don't think he's being because he wants to be honest. I think the sheer weight of evidence demands that he say this truth. To Jesus, in the wilderness of temptation, notice what the devil says. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority, this dominion, this rule, I will give you and their glory, and notice why he says he has it, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Jesus here is facing trying to win back the world through his own self-sacrifice, and Satan says, you don't have to go through all that. They gave me the keys to the place, and I can give it to you if I want. And he comes to him as an angel of light, and I want to help. And Gethsemane is going to stink. You don't want to do it. Calvary? Ooh. And for what? 2,000 years later, they're still going to be deciding if they should follow you or not. Dude, there's a much easier way. How about I just give you the thing for free? <laughs> well, I mean, not totally free. Just one time. In front of all those people who are gazing at me and watching me because you cast me out. One time, bow down and worship me as the Most High. And I'll give you the keys right now. 
I give it to whomever I wish. Friends, God did not create the devil. And God is not responsible for the existence of evil. However, God is responsible for the continuance of evil because ridding the universe of Satan is not an event that God can do. It's a process God must allow. Do you see the difference? From our perspective, we're going to see it over the next several meetings. There's several times we could say, well, why didn't you end it now? You can't end it now. God is ending the problem of evil, not just in a good way, but the only way that will ever actually work. He says, let both grow together until the harvest. Once sin began, it had to mature so that every created being in God's universe could see the difference between good and evil. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend. And those who practice lawlessness, He will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. There is a day coming where the righteous will inherit the earth and the wicked will be destroyed. But if it were be done too early, it wouldn't be done right and it wouldn't be done for good. When the war of good and evil is finally over, however, rebellion against God will never happen again. When the great controversy finally wraps up, there's not going to be a greater controversy. There's not going to be Universe War II. Once it's done, it's done. And what God is currently doing now is ridding the universe of evil the only way that will ever actually work. I told you tomorrow night we're going to look at another one. Tomorrow day, I'm sorry. Lucifer's lemonade stand. What on earth was he peddling around those courts of heaven? What was his line of reasoning? And how can we be shrewd to it even now so we don't fall for it and buy the same thing? Let me ask you a question. Has tonight's presentation at least made sense? Was it clear? Praise God for that, right? We're starting to convince the mind and we're going to find our place in this battle between good and evil. And believe me, friends, we have an active role in answering the universe's question and hastening the coming of Jesus. Okay? But for tonight, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for being a God who is patient and has a process for ending this rebellion in the only way that can ever truly work. Lord, help us to see you for who you are, a God of love, a God of patience, yet a God of justice. And Lord, we understand from Bible prophecy that we're living in the closing days of Earth's history. And soon and very soon, we're going to see our King. So it is my prayer tonight that you begin a work in our hearts that is not finished until the day you come, where we become more and more like Jesus, and we can fit into the society of his kingdom. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.